Good morning, and greet all of you in the name of Jesus. It's our connection, is it not? It's interesting how we can travel many different places in this world. We find people that we connect with because we have been redeemed. The song, Pure in Heart, stood out to me as well. And one of the great wonders of the redemption story is that while we stand in need of sanctification, we can stand in perfection. And that's amazing. That God is willing to receive us as complete in Him, even though He knows we still need to be worked on. We still need to be sanctified. You know, the older you get, the more you begin to reflect. And I think about when I first became a child of God and and even five years and ten years into that, and I reflect on that and I think, I had a lot to learn. There was a lot of immaturity, a lot of really silly mistakes, and yet God was willing to accept me at that place, at that time. And that is one of the, it's humbling, but it's beautiful part of our relationship with God. Caroline, if you come to our church next year for your birthday, we also have a little tradition of singing a birthday song. It's not the one you sang this morning. But we also have these really big candy bars we hand out to everybody who has a birthday. So come see us next year for your birthday at Fincastle Mennonite. So currently at home, we are, as a ministerial team, we're preaching a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So every Sunday... Um, whoever's up to preach just preaches the next section. And a number of, well, a couple months ago by now, I was speaking on Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, and I didn't do a very good job of covering all of that. And so we're just going to focus on verse 9 for this morning. Hopefully that will work out about right on the time. We call this Sermon on the Mount, especially the first part of it, the Beatitudes. And the the word Beatitudes has this idea of the blessedness of those who have certain qualities or experiences peculiar to those belonging to the kingdom of heaven. And this word blessed is the Greek word makarios, and it's a prolonged form of the poetical makar, meaning the same Supremely blessed, by extension, fortunate or well-off. Now, some of these Beatitudes are a little hard to wrap our minds around. Like, blessed are they, extremely well-off, supremely blessed. Are they who suffer persecution? How does that all work itself out? But this morning's verse we'd like to consider is verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, this idea of making peace. I think there are times when we think that must be a good life, that must be a peaceful life. But we'd like to give you a little dose of reality this morning as we think about being a peacemaker. I expect your your little village here, there's all kinds of relationship dynamics, right? There's staff dynamics, there's staff to the people you're caring for dynamics, there's dynamics between them, those of you who live here, and then what about these youngsters who try to take care of you? they got a lot to learn, don't they? Is that true? Maybe. You can tell me later. That's just relationships. There's administrative relationships. 
Um, we face relationships in all of life. And what's it like to have dysfunctional relationships? That's very difficult. But to maintain functional relationships also means that sometimes we have to talk about tough things. We have to interact on a level that's not real comfortable. And that's part of this idea of making peace. First of all, we'd like to consider peacemakers. What kind of people are they? A peacemaker, number one, is someone who is at peace. Peacemakers are people at peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it tells us, and this is prophetic, messianic prophecy, talking about Jesus when he would come. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace. There shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This prophetic um, passage in Isaiah tells me that if we're going to be people at peace, then we must know the Prince of Peace. Because that is a part of His government. It's a part of His kingdom, is peace. There is no peace outside the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's a mouthful, but it's entirely true. Because we've been created by Him in His image for relationship with Him, and outside of that, there's tension. It's only as we find our peace with our Maker that we truly have this peace that has no end. And, and think about that for a few moments. You know, one of the things that amazes me whenever I start reading in the Martyr's Mirror or other stories of persecuted Christians, how could they take that walk to the stake when they knew how it would feel to be burned? Or when they were looking at the executioner's sword and they were able to sing. They were able to smile. And on the way to their brutal death, they tried to convince others to become who they are. Isn't that astounding? And it worked. I think it was Tertullian who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Why was it so compelling? Because in the face of violent death, they were people at peace. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect or complete or wholeness of peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Do you think perhaps these people were at peace, not because they were going to be killed with the sword or burned in the fire, but because their mind was stayed on the Prince of Peace? There's a reason why the Apostle Paul tells us what to think about. Not because he isn't acknowledging the reality of everything that's wrong around us, but because he knows that in order for our relationship with God to remain, to remain functional and complete, we must choose what we will think about. And that is a challenge. <clears throat> is our mind truly stayed on God? Following God's direction leads us to peace and rest. And keeping our thoughts on Him causes fear to leave. In Isaiah 32, verse 17, 
And isn't it fascinating that so many of these verses are coming from the Old Testament as we think about peace? And the, works of, and the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. The work of righteousness is peace. You live a righteous life in Christ. And by the way, if, if you think the key verse in Scripture is about our righteousness, our righteousnesses, being as filthy rags, you must do a personal study on righteousness, okay? Because that is, I think, one of the only verses in Scripture that puts righteousnesses in a negative light, and it is because of the hypocrisy of the Israel, of the nation of Israel at that time. Uh, they were completely given to selfishness and immorality and still trying to perform righteousness and think they were righteous. Righteousnesses or righteous works as a result of a relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ is evidence that we are who we say we are as people of God. <clears throat> but the effect of righteousness is quietness and assurance forever. There is peace that goes along with the life of the righteous. A contentious and divisive spirit is not a mark of someone who's following God. A critical and a restless spirit is not a mark of the righteous. And that strikes pretty close to home, doesn't it? At least I, and I think many people, have a tendency to be critical. We observe people around us, and we, it's easy to start picking at that. But sowing discord amongst brethren, having a critical and restless spirit, is not the mark of a righteous life. Someone who is... Following God and living out of that relationship is someone who's at rest and someone who is long-suffering. The fruits of the Spirit flow out of their life. There's goodness and kindness and gentleness. Remember, we're talking about peacemakers being a people who are at peace. In James chapter 3, moving to the New Testament, <clears throat> there's a powerful passage about the followers of God. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envyings and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above, okay, the wisdom that we get from God is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Peacemakers are people at peace. And the seeds that they sow, the fruit that they grow, tends towards peace. Peace and peacemaking are compelling elements of righteousness. Let's not forget that if we are truly the people of God, we will live in peace. And the Prince of Peace imparts this peace to us. <clears throat> John 14, 27, peace Jesus' very own words, 
Peace I leave with you. Have you heard the word peace this morning yet? I hope it's echoing in your head for this whole week. Peace. The, the scriptures are full of it. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. It's not just an absence of conflict, but it's a state of living. See, the world thinks if there's no conflict, there's peace. They're just uh, looking at the um, existential impact or the, the external things. Here we're talking about something that's internal. And when everything around you is chaos, you're still at peace. That's the kind of peace we're talking about. Jesus says, I will give you this peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Later in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me, Jesus is saying, ye might have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. If you're questioning whether Jesus, God the Father, whether they're really able to manage this world, you're not going to be at peace. But if in, the, in your heart of hearts, you're confident that God is sovereign, He is in control, nothing that happens to you surprises Him, and you will always be prepared, if you're in His Word and you're sensitive to His Spirit, you'll always be prepared for whatever comes along. You really do not benefit from pining and worrying about the future. You simply benefit in cultivating a relationship with Him that keeps you postured for whatever life brings. So peacemakers are a people at peace. Point number two, peacemakers are a people who have counted the cost. You see, peacemakers are taken advantage of. And they're willing to be taken advantage of without broadcasting it, making sure everybody else knows about it, they don't need to highlight it that they've been taken advantage of. They are willing. They have counted the cost, and they know that peacemaking involves sacrifice. And Jesus makes this clear to us. He says, I will give you the peace, and you must trust me. But he says it comes at a cost. And it's typically a cost to our own selfishness. But why is a peacemaker willing to sacrifice his own rights to maintain peace? You see, a peacemaker recognizes the cost of their own peace. Did your peace come without a cost? And who paid the price for your peace? When we live in the conscious reality of the great cost of our own peace, in the Christian Evidences class this past week, we spent a good deal of time looking at the sufferings of Christ. See, it took more than just the shed blood of Christ to redeem you. In Isaiah chapter 53, it makes it clear that there was a direct link to the suffering that Jesus endured. The cost of sin was high. Jesus needed to suffer those stripes and the agony that He faced because it was part of God looking down and being satisfied that the price of sin had been met. And I don't profess to understand that all. I think the doctrine of atonement is something that there's a reason why people disagree about it. Theologians wrestle with it all their life. 
Because it's, it's hard to reconcile all that in our mind with who God is and how he looks at all of this. But the price for my peace was high. It's something that all of us can understand. And when I acknowledge that, and Jesus was willing to do it for me, he never made a mistake in his life. He never had to apologize for anything. He was the sinless lamb of God. And he shed his blood. And he suffered at the hands of vile men for me and for you. And when I'm willing to come to grips with the cost of my own peace, I'm willing, or at least more willing, to make the sacrifices necessary to be a peacemaker. <clears throat> you see, if you will be a peacemaker, you find yourself where Christ found himself. Christ found himself between the wrath of God against sin and the wrath of man. Peacemakers are often um, kind of beat on from both sides. Did you know that? When you're willing to inject yourself into a conflict and say, let's see if we can make peace here. Um, it's not unusual that you're not liked by either side. Unfortunately. Because as a peacemaker, you hear this side and you hear the other side and you realize there's needs on both sides and neither side wants to hear about their own needs. Because both see the needs on the other side. See, when there's conflict, we spend too much time looking through the window and not enough time looking in the mirror. We don't see our own needs. And when you decide that, or you feel, maybe you shouldn't decide, when you feel God leading you to be a peacemaker, or you find yourself with an opportunity to be a peacemaker, you find yourself in the midst of people in conflict. Jesus, the greatest peacemaker of all time, was there to make peace between the holy God and a fallen mankind. And he suffered the wrath of both. <clears throat> Peacemakers are a people who have counted the cost. In Isaiah 53, just to give you one of the verses I was referring to, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our Peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53.5 doesn't say anything about his death, does it? It's talking about wounding, bruising, chastisement, and stripes. He's still alive. He is suffering. And that is, if you want to dig into the doctrine of atonement, there's, there's something to his suffering that has to do with our peace and our healing. Peacemakers are a people who have counted the cost. Point number, four, uh, number three, peacemakers make peace. And again, you're going to hear some passages from Scripture here about peace. And I'm not apologizing for that because Scripture is full of this. All right? So peacemakers are a people at peace. They have connected to the Prince of Peace. They have peace within their own hearts. Peacemakers are a people who have counted the cost. And now they're going out to make peace. That's point number three. Peacemakers make peace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. 
I actually make intentional choices in my personal life to follow a path of peace. It doesn't mean that I do not confront sin or that I don't talk about needs, but I am following the most peaceful path that I can follow. You see, sometimes people are doing work they need to do. They're confronting sin that needs to be confronted, but the way they confront it is not following peace. It's more of an effort to set the record straight and hope the chips fall in the right direction. <clears throat> Peacemakers make peace. They follow peace. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'd like to look at a couple of verses there. And I know this is talking about the qualifications for church leadership, but we, at least at our church, talk a lot about the fact that we should have many qualified for this. So I think we can apply this to all of us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. The servant of the Lord must not strive. How important is it that you prove that you're right? That's where we get into striving. I need to prove that I was right. I need to prove my points. And Frankly, I am, there's a reason why I'm teaching an apologetics class at Bible school. I enjoy debates. I enjoy uh, vigorous discussions. But if the point is to make sure that everyone knows that I was right, I am willing to move into this place of striving and, and um, being antagonistic in these debates and discussions. But the servant of the Lord must not strive. He must be patient and meek. And here's the piece that is really difficult. In verse 25, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Have you ever interacted with someone who just makes life hard on themselves? It's just the way they live. And, and they're not willing to take any advice. They just continue to trip over their own feet. Or they trip over rocks they put in their own path. They just keep doing it over and over again. There's an older gentleman that comes to our congregation regularly who is, um, <clears throat> it's kind of the way he lives. He just keeps throwing things in his own path. And sometimes you just want to tell him. I mean, in ways you shouldn't. He has been told, and we'll continue to tell him, but in meekness in meekness instructing those who oppose themselves. You see, at least for me, there's a few things it took me a lot of time to learn. God had to work on me for quite some time. And he'd like for us to represent him well on this earth. Follow peace. That's part of this in verse 22. But follow peace. That's how we're approaching these situations and these people that we're working with. We try to avoid controversy that clouds the water and confuses the issue. We're willing to share the truth 
and let them reject it. We've been faithful. If we've shared the truth in meekness, if they still reject it, it's on them. But I won't, I won't follow coercive or manipulative methods to try to force someone to accept truth because it contradicts the very nature of truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. This is speaking to the church at Ephesus. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace is a powerful glue. When there's peace amongst brethren and someone tries to kind of divide them or put a wedge in there, they rally around each other. They have each other's backs because they know they're men at peace with each other. A group of staff that are at peace with each other are not going to be divided very easily because it is a powerful motivator to maintain peace. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. If you are facing confusion and not peace, it's important to acknowledge that this is not from God. Something else has brought this chaos into my life, and it's not God. God would like to bring peace into my life and maintain peace in my life. Romans 10, 15. Remember, we're making peace. And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. We're peacemakers. We're making peace. And it comes through the gospel message and bring glad tidings of good things. Ephesians 6.15 And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This is good news. Many people in this world would love to have the peace that you have in your life. Share the gospel with them. Promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Romans 14, verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Have you heard any word about peace this morning? Follow after things that make for peace. You know, I, can, I have many choices to make in life. And is this going to lend itself towards peace? Is this going to draw people together? Or is it going to tend to divide? Is it going to tend to separate? Those are decisions we all get to make. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Peacemakers, we are making peace. We make decisions every day that impact the peace for people around us. We're now talking about the relationships around us, okay? We've already talked about your personal relationship of peace, but this is as you relate to people around you. Live in peace. He's talking to the church at Corinth. What a melting pot in Corinth. This was a city of commerce. All kinds of different people in Corinth. And he tells them to be of one mind and live in peace. That is quite a goal for a church in Corinth. Let's come back to our key verse this morning from the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers, fourthly, peacemakers are recognized as children of God. 
Not because life is always easy for them. Not because they have everything figured out in life and they're never in the midst of conflict. But because they continue to draw people back to the Prince of Peace. They continue to promote peace. They promote the gospel of peace. They are the, they are the ones who are willing to surrender their own rights rather than demand their own rights. They're willing to suffer for the sake of others. They don't give just what is required to be a Christian, but they go the second mile. They believe firmly in second mile Christianity. Peacemakers don't take sides. They make an appeal for reconciliation and restoration. Now, I, I have, I've had a little trouble with this one. I, I think I've been convinced for a long time that peacemakers don't take sides. They work towards reconciliation and restoration. <clears throat> but in that effort, I think there are times when people I've been working with haven't always felt heard. And it's important that we do that. When someone comes to you and and you're trying to bring reconciliation between two parties or two people, whatever it is, it's important that both sides feel heard and understood by you. But they must also be humble enough to receive your counsel then. But it's much easier to receive counsel from a peacemaker if they have first felt heard and understood. And I think that's a lesson that I learned the hard way. But it's important that you don't at least appear to take sides. And one of the accusations I got in a conflict I was working in years ago, um, this side told me I was sticking up for this side, and this side told me I was sticking up for this side. And, And the reason was because I was trying to address the needs in their own life. And so this person felt like all I do is stick up for them and poke at their needs and vice versa. So it's important that you give affirmation to the people on both sides. Make sure they, under, they know you understand their, their um, ah, gripes is a bad word, their concerns or the things that make it hard for them. Make sure they understand that. But then in meekness, help them also see how they can make a difference in the situation. <clears throat> Peacemakers are recognized as children of God because they demonstrate the gospel of peace. They are willing to pay the cost, to pay the price. In conclusion, Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter to him, chapter 2, verse 1, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We are to be people at peace. We are to be peacemakers. And we should even pray that we can lead a peaceable life. But there are times when people at peace and who are peacemakers, don't have the privilege of living a peaceable life. It's a life of difficulty and conflict. I know a man who spent many years in church leadership who, in my estimation, is a very peaceable man. 
but he seemed to be embroiled in conflict much of his life. And I'm sure he had his own faults. But being a peacemaker is hard work at times. But it's our calling. It's what we're here for. And I believe that it, even if it doesn't happen in this life, one of the great compliments we can get from the Prince of Peace will be that here is one of mine because he is a peacemaker. It's evidenced in his life. I know it takes the blood of Christ to redeem a life, but the evidence will be judged by our works. And one of the evidences that you are a child of God is that you are a peacemaker. May we as peacemakers continue to pray for peace and opportunities to serve God by making peace with those around us and in, in um, conflict around us. When we face some level of slander and defamation as peacemakers, may we give God the opportunity to be avenger and consider ourselves blessed. You don't need to fight for your own uh, rights. May we never confuse suffering for our own failures with suffering for righteousness' sake. Let's bow our heads for prayer. <clears throat>